everyone, and welcome to the March 6th edition of the WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulce, an attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB ordered that the testimony of an out-of-state adjuster be taken electronically. Here's what happened in the significant panel decision of Jamie Simmons versus Just Winging It Incorporated and Pro Century Insurance Company. The applicant, Jamie Simmons, sustained injury to his right foot and ankle. The case was set for trial to reserve an issue about his TTD was paid. It became clear at the MSC that there was a disagreement on the method of providing payment to the applicant and that the adjuster would be required to testify at the upcoming trial. The defendant argued that there were multiple ways in which the adjuster could be allowed to testify. However, the work comp judge claimed that the witness's credibility is being assessed at trial and it is difficult to assess credibility if the witness is not present in the courtroom. Thus, the work comp judge ordered that the claims adjuster, who lives in Illinois, must appear in person for trials. The employer filed a petition for removal seeking relief from this order and argued that it would suffer substantial prejudice if it were required to produce the claims adjuster at trial, noting that verbal testimony can be obtained by court call or video conferencing. The WCAB granted removal and ordered the testimony be taken electronically because the California Code of Civil Procedure explicitly provides for the taking of depositions by remote electronic means, as do the California rules of court. And now our crime report. A lawyer at a prominent Washington, D.C. firm was arrested in California while trying to sell a copy of a secret lawsuit involving a company that was under investigation by the U.S. Justice Department. Jeffrey Wirtkin was taken into custody in the lobby of the Hilton Garden Inn in Cupertino, California, where he believed he was about to collect $310,000 for selling a copy of the sealed whistleblower lawsuit to the targeted company. He was charged with contempt of court and obstruction of justice. Attorney Wirtkin had previously held a coveted job at the Justice Department in 2010, working on cases related to health care fraud. He worked at the Justice Department to April 2016 when he left for a job at the prominent firm of Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld in Washington, D.C., Workin believed he would hand a copy of a sealed federal key Tom whistleblower lawsuit to an employee of the company which was accused in the case of falsely billing the government. The whistleblower case was previously filed under seal in January 2016 in the San Francisco Division of the United States District Court. Workin, who was wearing a wig and using the assumed name of Dan, was met instead by an FBI agent. FBI agents now want to know whether Wirtkin got the lawsuit from someone inside the Justice Department and if he sold other secrets while working there. Wirtkin was released on $750,000 bail. The case began with an employee at an unidentified technology security company in Sunnyvale who received a voicemail from him last November. 
The caller said a sealed False Claim Act lawsuit had been filed against the company and left a return phone number. When the employee returned the call, Wirtkin identified himself as Dan and said he could provide a copy of the complaint for a consulting fee. He mailed a redacted copy of the cover page to the employee, who then notified the FBI and agreed to secretly record calls with Dan. Later, Dan said he would provide the full complaint for $310,000 in untraceable bitcoins and that buying the complaint would help the company get out ahead of the investigation. Dan outlined the employee's plan to meet near Sunnyvale, and the employee said a colleague named Bill would meet him with the money in a hotel lobby. Well, Bill turned out to be FBI agent William Scanlon, who arrested Wirtkin in the hotel lobby. Court documents reflect that Wirtkin's immediate response to the FBI agent was, My life is over. The Employers Fraud Task Force meeting last month in Commerce focused on problems with patient identity theft, a massive and growing healthcare fraud concern. The speaker, Mike McKee, the senior special agent of the National Insurance Crime Bureau, presented many case examples, including the now infamous security breach perpetrated upon Anthem Insurance. McKee made a compelling presentation about the fraudulent use of stolen identities for purposes of billing and California workers' compensation claims. Perpetrators have ready access to lists of patient information for a price from sellers on the dark web. Patient identities are readily bought and sold as a lucrative commodity. It's been more than two years since health insurer Anthem publicly announced it was the target of a cyber attack. So do we kn- what do we know now about the biggest healthcare security breach so far? Well, hackers stole the birthdays, social security numbers, and other data for nearly 80 million people, the largest healthcare data breach ever, yet there are still some unanswered questions. There is no definitive conclusion of who the hackers were or whether Anthem faces penalties from the federal government. Anthem executives have not addressed the cyber attack in any earnings calls since it was announced. Officials say there's no evidence that medical or credit card information was stolen. Anthem has spent at least $260 million related to the data breach, most of which went toward improving security and providing credit protection to people who were affected. A spokeswoman said Anthem is still taking steps to help ensure the security of its symptom systems. The two years of free credit monitoring Anthem provided are now up. However, recently the National Association of Insurance Commissioners concluded that Anthem has to pay more than $15 million more for a credit freeze to the roughly 12 million effective, affected Anthem members. Anthem has not disclosed the value of its cyber insurance policy, which defrays some of these costs. The hackers were most likely working on behalf of a foreign government. Many security experts believe it was China, but that has not been proven yet. 
The FBI would not comment on the pending investigation, and it's not clear if Anthem will face a federal penalty. However, the Department of Health and Human Services has imposed fines in the past. The HHS Office for Civil Rights said it cannot comment on open or potential investigations. A former HHS official said it usually takes three to four years before a settlement is reached, and it's certainly not a given that HHS will pursue a fine if it believes Anthem had safeguards in place. Class action lawsuits are still pending, and fact-finding discovery ended last December. And in regulatory news, the DWC has concluded its investigation into San Bernardino County's handling of cases involving victims of the December 2015 terror attack at the Inland Regional Center. The eight-page report said that denials for treatment have been rare and that delays were mainly attributed to doctors failing to submit the appropriate information. Until mid-April 2016, the county was routinely approving nearly all requests, according to the report. But as the claims matured, the county increased its scrutiny of treatment requests leading to modifications and denials. However, the IMR decisions generally upheld the county's actions, often because doctors failed to document or fully explain their requests, while employees who were expecting recommendations to be followed were frustrated by the denials. The report claims that better documentation at the time requests were submitted might have reduced the number of denials and independent medical review requests. Officials credited the county with hiring nurse case managers to facilitate treatment requests. In December, the County Board of Supervisors allocated $100,000 to hire an outside firm to help expedite claims by establishing the Workers' Comp Claim Expediter Reserve Fund. 90% of the 2,146 requests for medical and psychological treatment and prescription medications for the 58 survivors were approved. 3% of the requests received modified approval. Among the 144 treatments that were denied, only 9 were overturned on appeal, less than 1% of the total number of requests. In all, there were 68 appeals filed by 11 employees. The county denied claims of 25 employees alleging psychological injury from the terror attack, with most citing that the employees were not at the training center when the incident occurred. A large percentage of denied claims was concentrated among a relatively small number of providers, suggesting a particular problem with certain providers and not typical or characteristic of interactions as a whole. Congressman speaking at the WCRI annual conference in Boston predicted that the workers' compensation system could end up feeling some pain if changes to health care and other social insurance programs causes some Americans to lose benefits. Former U.S. Representative Harry Waxman, a California Democrat and one of the framers of the 
uh, ACA said that divisions among Republicans are likely to get in the way of an, an effective compromise on health care. Former U.S. Senator Tom Coburn, an Oklahoma Republican, said that while he believes Congress will pass something, whatever bill passes probably will not attack the real problem plaguing the health care system. Coburn predicted Congress will pass a bill similar to what is known as the Burr-Hatch-Upton proposal. This proposal, also known as the CARE Act, keeps popular ACA features, including pre-existing condition protections, while eliminating the individual mandate. It also allows individuals and small business employees to use tax credits to purchase insurance, caps Medicaid funds to states, and reforms medical malpractice laws. When asked if claims will shift to workers' compensation and social insurance programs if more people end up being uninsured, Waxman replied he had no doubt about that being the result. The two congressmen agreed that the workers' compensation industry probably does not have to worry about the federal government getting involved in its business anytime soon. Waxman suggesting that Congress has many other issues on its plate. Coburn also said to expect to benefit from changes coming in medicine over the next two decades in areas of personalized precision medicine and cures for chronic problems. He predicted that at first it's going to cost a lot, but outcomes, especially in terms of workers' comp, will be great in ways we cannot imagine. The WCAB has adopted its final rules of practice and procedure, implementing Senate Bill 1160, which will become effective on March 26, 2017. Any lien claimant who filed a lien before January 1 that was subject to a filing fee under Labor Code Section 4903.05 is required to file a supplemental lien form and declaration on the new form approved by the Appeals Board before July 1, 2017. The Appeals Board has already approved the supplemental lien form and declaration for use as an e-form and lien claimants can use that form now. Lien claimants may wish to file this form in advance of the adoption of the rule requiring it and will not have to refile the form once the rule goes into effect. The DWC has posted frequently asked questions regarding the use of this new lien form. And the DWC held a public hearing on these rules last January 4 and released a transcript of what the public comments made that day. Steve Catolica, who represents the California Society of Industrial Medicine and Surgery, as well as the California Workers' Compensation Interpreters Association, and attorney Steve Rondeau, who represents lien claimants, both voiced concerns about retroactive requirements for the lien documentation under the new rules. They say that some of the required information is not now available or known to the lien claimants since there was not previously a requirement that they collect this information. Specifically, they were concerned that the lien claimants have to file a declaration under penalty of perjury 
stating that they have documentation that treatment has been neglected or unreasonably refused. And many providers are having difficulty assembling this documentation. Pilar Garcia, the owner of Statewide Interpreters, and Carolina Darund, who works for the company, both testified that the new requirements are running them out of business after 19 years of providing interpreting services. Most of their complaints involve the inability to obtain pre-authorization for interpreting services from carriers and TPAs. The newly adopted rules and their related final statement of reasons are posted on the WCAB's website. The DWC will begin the process of amending the MTUS regulations by posting the proposed changes to its online forum. These changes lay the foundation for the evidence-based guideline updates to the MTUS that for the first time will apply an expedited process pursuant to recent amendments to the Labor Code. Once the formal rulemaking process begins with these proposed regulatory amendments, the DWC will begin the expedited process to update the evidence-based guidelines by administrative director order. And in medical news, most people are not aware that surgeons are sometimes involved in multiple operations happening at the same time, and many patients might object to the practice if they knew about it. The practice also raises questions about the correct formula under the official medical fee schedule for surgeries. In the study published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, researchers focused on what's known as overlapping surgery. This occurs when a senior surgeon performs critical components of one operation at the same time that a trainee surgeon or physician assistant handles a non-critical portion of another procedure elsewhere. Only about 4% of the people surveyed for this study had heard of the practice of overlapping surgery. Just 31% of them strongly supported the practice once it was explained. And nearly all of the participants thought patients should be told before surgery exactly what aspects of their operations might be handled by a senior surgeon or by a trainee or resident or an assistant. Overall, about 92% of respondents thought surgeons should document one portion of the operations they were present for. After overlapping surgery was described, about 70% of the participants thought the practice might be applicable in certain circumstances, such as lower risk procedures or in situations where an emergency occurred in another operating room. The study focused on the more accepted practice of overlapping surgery, not situations known as concurrent surgery, when one senior surgeon is in charge of crucial portions of two different operations at the same time. Concurrent surgery is rare and generally should be avoided unless there's an urgent or unplanned situation. Many patients live with low back pain that radiates to the buttocks, groin, thigh, and even the knees. 
The challenge for doctors is determining the origin of the pain. Does it come from the hip, the spine, or both? A new article in the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons outlines the identical symptoms associated with hip and spine pain and discusses the diagnostic steps and tests required to diagnose them appropriately. Typically, groin pain and difficulty putting on your shoes or getting in and out of the car are associated with a hip condition. Buttock or back pain, with or without a tingling sensation, most likely originates in the spine. However, patients with complex hip-spine syndrome have lower back and hip pain with no clear source of the discomfort. Hip arthritis, for example, can increase pressure on the low back. In these instances, similar or overlapping symptoms may delay a correct diagnosis and appropriate treatment. The article recommends that patients provide a detailed health history and undergo a comprehensive physical examination that includes an assessment of gait, hip and back range of motion, posture, pelvic, lower limb and spinal alignment, muscle atrophy, previous surgical scars, and limb length discrepancy. Plain and advanced imaging studies and diagnostic injections also can be used to further delineate the primary problem and guide the appropriate sequence of treatment. Focusing on both the spine and the hip as potential causes of pain and disability may reduce the likelihood of misdiagnosis and the management of conditions affecting the spine and hip may help reduce the likelihood of persistent symptoms. Antibiotics and similar drugs, together called antimicrobial agents, have been used for the last 70 years to treat patients who have infectious diseases. Since the 1940s, these drugs have greatly reduced illnesses and death. However, these drugs have been used so widely and for so long that the infectious organisms have adapted to them, making the drugs less effective. Each year in the United States, at least 2 million people become infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and at least 23,000 people die each year as a direct result of these infections. But a new Harris poll shows most Americans are clueless about the dangers. More than two-thirds of U.S. adults know little or nothing about so-called superbugs, bacterial infections that are resistant to many or all antibiotics. And around half believe incorrectly that antibiotics work against viruses. That's a concern because improper antibiotic use is considered the major driver of the superbug problem, a problem with deadly consequences. Millions of patients continue to believe that antibiotics will help them recover from colds, flu, and other viral infections, and they can be upset with their doctors if they will not prescribe them. But it's a better practice to avoid pressuring your doctor for an antibiotic. And when a doctor does prescribe one, ask whether it's really necessary. A less obvious tactic is to choose to buy antibiotic-free meat. In the United States, antibiotics are commonly given to food-producing animals to promote their growth. 
That practice can cause animals to develop drug-resistant bacteria, which can then be transmitted to humans. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.